I'm Stephen Schwabel, and I'm particularly pleased to participate in this program because I had a hand uh, in conceiving it uh, years ago uh, when I was a, a delegate to the General Assembly sitting in the legal committee, the sixth committee uh, representing the United States. At that time, I was the assistant legal advisor for United Nations Affairs and the State Department and the legal advisor of the U.S. mission to the U.N. And uh, a number of us uh, thought that it would be useful for the U.N. to have a program uh, for the wider dissemination and appreciation of international law. Uh, and in the event, I believe it was Ireland and maybe another member state or two proposed a resolution uh, setting up this program, which has um, uh, trundled along uh, ever since. I, I propose to talk about international uh, arbitration and adjudication. Uh, shortly before I came to the uh, United Nations General Assembly in 1961, I'd been teaching at Harvard Law School in their international legal studies program. And one of my colleagues there was Professor Louis Sohn. And he and I had a sort of luncheon game in which we would try to think up obscure disputes that might be taken to the International Court of Justice for adjudication. Because at that time, the court had so little to do uh, virtually nothing. It had very few cases. And at that time, I'm speaking of 1959 to 61, uh, there was hardly any international arbitration going on either. Now, in these respects at least, there's been an extraordinary change. Uh, and I think one can fairly say that if the settlement of international disputes by arbitration and adjudication is a sign of progress, in this respect at least, the world has made a remarkable progress in the last 50 years. The International Court of Justice in 1961-62 um, had very few cases on its docket and it had as of 62, uh, one advisory opinion to give on certain expenses of the United Nations. I appeared in that case. That was my first direct exposure to the International Court of Justice. I'm just looking at the catalog of cases in the court, which are very helpfully printed on the website of the International Court of Justice. ICJCIJ.org, and in 1961, there was one case on the docket of the International Court of Justice, Northern Cameroon's case, Cameroon versus United Kingdom, and there was this one request for an advisory opinion. Uh, today, uh, the court has 12 cases on its docket. It's had at times over 20. 12 may not sound like very many, but if one bears in mind 
the cardinal fact that in contentious cases, only states can be parties to the case before the court. And there are less than 200 states in the world. 12 cases between states is actually quite a number. I mean, if in New York City, there were only 200 parties that could bring cases to the New York courts, there would not be thousands and thousands of cases in the New York courts. It simply wouldn't be possible. And one must view uh, the settlement of international disputes uh, in that fundamental perspective. There's further the fundamental point that states are not obliged to submit their disputes to international adjudication. They have to have consented to do it. And the various ways in which they can consent, and that's a considerable subject on its own. But if a state hasn't consented either after the dispute has arisen or in advance of a particular dispute, for example, by becoming party to a treaty that provides that disputes that arise under that treaty may at the instance of a party be sent to the court for adjudication, uh, the court lacks jurisdiction. It has to have consent in one form or another. Well, when you take these two fundamental elements into account, first, uh, that only states can be parties to contentious cases in the less than 200 states, uh, and second, that they have to consent, actually, uh, the number of international disputes under adjudication is quite substantial. Now, there are plenty of disputes that are never adjudicated, plenty of, of legal disputes that are never adjudicated for all sorts of reasons, good and bad. The state that thinks it has the better case may be prepared to go to court, the other is not. That sort of elemental consideration. But the essential point I want to leave the listener with is that the days when professional international lawyers uh, were searching their craniums uh, for disputes to take to the court uh, have passed. The court has plenty of work. It is a busy, productive organ. And I think it's fair to say on any evaluation uh, one of the most successful of the organs of the United Nations, and it is a principal organ of the United Nations, is one of the six principal organs and the judicial uh, representation uh, of the United Nations. Now, in addition to its primary purpose, which is to settle disputes between states, uh, the court also is available to give advisory opinions to the United Nations itself uh, and to specialized agencies uh, authorized by the UN General Assembly to request advisory opinions, and all of the specialized agencies have been so authorized, and there have been close to 25 of such opinions rendered in the life of this court. Now, this court has an immediate ancestor, the Permanent Court of International Justice. Uh, which began operation in 1922 and functioned until the outbreak uh, of the Second World War, essentially for 18 years. That was the first world court in history. It was a great experiment, as indeed was the League of Nations itself and the League Assembly 
set up a committee pursuant to the League of Nations Covenant uh, to draft the statute of the Permanent Court of International Justice. And that court, in its 18 years of work, had a record of studied achievement, which was really very great. So that when, after the Second World War, uh, there was virtually unanimous opinion that the League of Nations had to be replaced by a new international organization because it had been discredited by its failure uh, to prevent the Second World War and to take action against states that acted in outrageous violation of the most basic international legal principles, uh, notably the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan. While there was this accepted opinion that the League would be replaced by a new international organization, at the same time was equally accepted that the World Court had been a success and had to be maintained, and it was maintained. The International Court of Justice replaced the Permanent Court of International Justice, uh, but it was a change in name, not in substance, because the Permanent Court was a success, was regarded as a success. Though the term success is relative, if one goes back to the turn of the 19th, 20th centuries, the peace movement of that era was transfixed by the belief that the way to prevent war was to arbitrate disputes between states or settle them judicially. Uh, and that was an overriding theme of the two Hague Peace Conferences that were called, that of 1899 and 1907. An attempt then was made to set up a permanent court of international justice. It failed because there was no mechanism to choose the judges of the court. And in the absence of such a mechanism, every state represented at those conferences, I think at the second, there were 44, wanted to have a judge on the court, which was clearly unworkable. So on that elemental problem, uh, the attempt failed. But when the League of Nations was constituted in the wake of World War I, uh, its assembly and its council provided uh, the mechanics for the election of the judges. Now it was provided that the judges would be nominated not by states, but by so-called national groups in the Permanent Court of Arbitration. And that takes me back to the two Hague conferences. Uh, those conferences uh, were called into the initiative of the Russian Tsar, who wanted to limit armaments. They failed in that. They did adopt some important conventions, which have continuing validity to this day, uh, which uh, establish rules of warfare uh, and uh, restrictions on the use of certain weapons. Uh, and while they did not result in the constitution of a court, they did result in the establishment of the so-called permanent court of arbitration, which is not a court. It is simply an arbitral facility, uh, which is in The Hague, uh, 
Every state party to the Hague Conventions on Peaceful Settlement of Disputes is entitled to name four persons as potential arbitrators, and they sometimes do arbitrate, but what they do much more frequently uh, every three years is nominate candidates for election. In the old days to the Permanent Court of International Justice, 1922 to 1940, today to the International Court of Justice. Now in most countries that's a distinction without a difference because the foreign minister names the four members uh, of this arbitral panel who in turn nominate judges for the court and the foreign ministry in effect instructs uh, the members of the permanent court and they make the nomination. But in some states, particularly the democratic ones, uh, the process has grown up by which the members of the Permanent Court of Arbitration follow a provision of the statute of the court to consult uh, their high courts and legal faculties and non-governmental organizations on whom to nominate. And this, in fact, uh, has meant uh, that uh, some nominees for the court have not really been the candidates of the government in power, but have been nominated because they have predominant support in that fashion. Now let me say something about arbitration before going back uh, to the World Court. Arbitration came into prominence in the 19th century as a way of settling international disputes, especially claims of the citizens of one state against the government of another state. They may have been tourists and mistreated. They may have been traders who were mistreated. Uh, they may have established businesses that were expropriated, that kind of thing. Uh, and there were not infrequently claims commissions uh, when there were a lot of such claims which would deal with such disputes rather than having them negotiated between uh, the two governments. And where governments failed to agree in the settlement, uh, they would often send these disputes to arbitration, either to a claims commission for a number of them or to a particular ad hoc arbitration. But th these disputes were largely relatively minor of this kind. There were exceptions, for example, at the end of the American Revolutionary War, pursuant to the Jay Treaty, which brought an end to the war legally, Great Britain and the United States set up a mixed commission with an equal number of commissioners to decide on what debts were still owing to uh, British traders that were incurred by Americans, and more consequentially, perhaps, what the borders should be between Canada and the United States. And that on the whole was a successful venture, though it had its difficulties, not least because there was no neutral third party as chairman. The great impetus for international arbitration came 80 years later in the wake of the Civil War. And during the Civil War, the Confederacy outfitted a number of 
vessels in British ports uh, which preyed on Union shipping. Uh, the most successful or the most notorious, depending on one's viewpoint, was the Alabama, which sunk a great many uh, Union vessels. And after the war, the United States entered into negotiations with Great Britain claiming that Great Britain had violated its neutral duties by permitting these ships to be built and armed in British ports. This was a quite an acute dispute and some worried that it might even have led to warfare between the United States and Great Britain. They finally agreed to submit it to arbitration uh, and it was arbitrated in Geneva. Each party named an arbitrator, but there were three arbitrators from states that had nothing to do with the dispute. And they met uh, in what is called the Alabama Room uh, in a distinguished looking building in old Geneva and rendered an award in favor of the United States for a very large sum of money. Uh, the British arbitrator dissented uh, Great Britain wasn't happy, uh, but it paid the award and the dispute disappeared. This was regarded by the peace activists of the day as a sensational development, and quite rightly, uh, because he who had a really serious dispute that could have led to war, and which in, in the end only involved money, but very large sums of money, and honor, prestige, etc which was successfully settled by arbitration. And in the wake of that, arbitration treaties between states, providing that uh, they would settle disputes that might arise in future between them by arbitration, became very widespread and resulted in a number uh, of interstate arbitrations. And once the Permanent Court of Arbitration was set up in 1899, uh, this accelerated, but still the number of disputes was rather small. I mean, that was settled in this way, uh, something like 22, if I recall uh, correctly, uh, in the days before the creation of the permanent court. Now, that kind of arbitration still exists. Uh, for example, um, Ethiopia and Eritrea engaged in a very substantial uh, war, 1998 to 2000, extensive and rather horrendous warfare, which they finally were brought to stop uh, and um, by mediation of the uh, African the, Union, uh, the African Union and the United States and Algeria. And they signed an agreement that provided uh, for the cessation of hostilities, etc., and for the creation of two orbital tribunals. One to draw the boundary between them, which was the flashpoint for the war, and two to settle claims arising out of the war. And there are other arbitral tribunals uh, of this type. They're not frequent, but you find them from time to time. Also, uh, there have been 
a modern claims commissions like the ones that had operated in the 19th century. I mean, in the wake of the First World War, there were many such commissions, like the German-American one, which dealt with many thousands of cases, mixed arbitral tribunals in Europe. <coughs> but in more recent times, one has the Iran-United States Claims Commission, which is sitting nowadays still uh, in The Hague, uh, and which has dealt with uh, claims of American nationals against the government of Iran uh, for the breach of contract, seizure of property, etc., and claims of the Iranian government against the United States government in respect of uh, armaments which the imperial government of Iran had ordered and paid for, but which it did not receive. And that commission is now finished with the claims of companies and is now uh, engaging these massive claims of Iran. And in the wake of uh, the Iraqi attack on Kuwait and it's um, being repelled by uh, United Nations uh, forces, uh, a claims commission was set up which assumed the liability of Iraq for the damages caused but which dealt with uh, the reparations to be paid to the various parties that were injured by that aggression, of whom there were thousands of different categories, and many billions of dollars uh, have been awarded and paid by uh, that process. So interstate arbitration is still alive and well, although much of what it's been did do traditionally has been taken over uh, by international courts, particularly the International Court of Justice. Now, there are two other types of arbitration that are extremely important on the international scene today. One is international commercial arbitration. The citizen of state A concludes a contract with a citizen of state B or companies of A and B, and neither feel altogether comfortable with submitting disputes that might arise under the contract to the courts of one or the other, so they agree that they will arbitrate disputes under those contracts. Uh, those disputes, uh, and there are thousands of them every year, are arbitrated by institutions like the International Chamber of Commerce in Paris, the American Arbitration Association in New York, the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce in Stockholm, the London Court of International Arbitration, etc. That's really been going on in very significant measure since the early 1920s. And in the 1950s, a convention was concluded under United Nations auspices, the United Nations Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards, which is a very important and successful convention for which the United Nations is given scant credit, which provides that the courts of State A will enforce 
an arbitral judgment given in state B as if it were a judgment given in state A. And since in the international community has not been able to conclude an international convention on the enforcement of foreign court judgments, it's the more remarkable uh, that this convention on the enforcement of foreign arbitral awards was concluded and has operated with great success uh, ever since. Now the new phenomenon is this. The World Bank uh, in the 1960s under the leadership of its then general counsel, a Dutchman, Aaron Brockes, had the idea that disputes between states and foreign investors, which had been episodically arbitrated and very occasionally had gone to the world court where a state had taken up the claim of its national and espoused it, would better be dealt with if they were taken out of the political realm altogether and were dealt with by a process of arbitration in which the foreign investor directly could bring the government of the state in which the investor made the investment uh, to arbitration. And so the World Bank set up the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID, uh, which has functioned very successfully since it had a slow start. It took years before cases came in any numbers. But now there are over a hundred cases pending before these World Bank tribunals. And there are about 2,500 bilateral investment treaties in existence between states of every political and economic coloration, north, south, east, west, south, south, et cetera, et cetera, which provide that foreign investors shall be treated equitably and fairly, that the property, if taken, shall be compensated, and give the investor the right to require the state to arbitrate disputes in respect of that investment. And that's been the particular impulse for the immense increase uh, in that kind of arbitration, which for short is called uh, investment uh, arbitration. And that's now a, a little industry of its own, uh, producing uh, quite a number of arbitral awards each year, uh, which are very interesting because they mark the meeting of national law and international law. Both are in play in these cases. Though if there's a conflict, the tribunals will typically hold that international law is paramount. So to sum up, on the arbitration side, interstate arbitration has not been displaced by courts altogether, though perhaps in some measure. Investment arbitration, which was very sporadic, 
pursuant to contracts or to governmental espousal of claims is now a commonplace and um, at any one time now there are a substantial number of such arbitrations in process. And international commercial arbitration is the favored method of solving disputes that arise on international contracts. And one finds that companies, no matter what their nationality, will enter into contracts which so provide. Now, having said that much about arbitration, I want to move back to the world court with which I started. The court today has a dozen cases on its docket. Let me mention what that docket uh, is, what those cases are, or some of them, because it'll give uh, the listener a sense of what the court does. It has four cases which deal with disputes over maritime boundaries. Drawing boundaries in the ocean is a new phenomenon. There was always the limit of territorial waters, but the United Nations sponsored a series of conferences on maritime problems, and the third United Nations conference on the law of the sea, which went on for more than 10 years and was the longest running and most complex international negotiation in history, produced the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, which uh, is a very comprehensive uh, treaty <coughs> dealing with virtually <coughs> all aspects <coughs> of maritime interest. <coughs> but the treaty itself, of course, does not draw maritime boundaries, though it contains principles pertinent to that. And, <coughs> sorry, disputes not infrequently arise between states as to where the maritime boundaries are. Under the Law of the Sea Convention, there's particular room for disputes because states under that convention are entitled to exploit undersea resources not only in the territorial sea, which they were always entitled to do, if they had the capacity, which they didn't until recently, but now they can exploit resources uh, in the continental shelf and the exclusive economic zone, loosely speaking, some 200 miles uh, 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 from their um, coasts. Well, Boundary cases, both maritime and land, have been a staple of the work of the Permanent Court of International Justice and of the International Court of Justice. There are four maritime boundary cases now before the court and one territorial dispute out of the 12. These disputes may not gone a headlines in newspapers, but they're very important to the states concerned. 
and the principles of law developed by those cases are very important to all states, at least states that are maritime states, and even those who are not, of course, trade through the seas. And the court's record in respect of territorial disputes, land and maritime, uh, has been outstandingly successful. Uh, every judgment that the court has ha handed down in this sphere, and there are quite a number now, have been followed by the port parties, have been implemented, uh, and have settled the dispute. And some of them have been not so easy for the state's concern to accept. Uh, let me cite two examples. For some years, warfare of an intermittent but substantial kind transpired between Libya and Chad, each laid claim to a very large area of desert the so-called Uzu Strip, which was much more than a strip. France supported Chad. Uh, there was substantial warfare. Finally, after mediation by the Organization for African Unity, it was agreed that if Libya and Chad didn't settle a dispute within a year, either could take it to the court. And in the event, both did. Uh, the case was exhaustively argued before the court, very ably by counsel on both sides. The court came down with a decision with only one dissent, which awarded the whole of the territory to Chad. Uh, Libya, after a very short time, evacuated the territory under the supervision of the UN Security Council. And what was a dispute that had provoked warfare and headlines throughout the world uh, was never heard of again. Indeed, the, the very settlement of it by the court got very little attention in contrast to all the attention that was given to the warfare that went on before. Now, more recently, Cameroon and Nigeria had a dispute over which state had sovereignty over a uh, large area of territory in the delta between them, and which state was entitled to exercise jurisdiction uh, over the waters offshore, uh, and uh, also which state uh, had jurisdiction over other points of the long land boundary between them, a very long land boundary. All of that was sent to the court. The mainland area in dispute, the Bakasi Peninsula, eventually was fully awarded to Cameroon though there were many thousands of Nigerians living in the area. 
this was not easy for Nigeria to accept. Uh, the UN Secretary General and Kofi Annan, um, once the court's decision came down, took a very active role in promoting agreement between Nigeria and Cameroon to implement the judgment, which they were legally bound to do in any event. Uh, and in the end, they did. And I think that's much to the credit, not only of the Secretary General, but particularly of Nigeria, which found it painful, but nevertheless did evacuate a territory, first, which it had occupied for a long time, second, where there were many Nigerians living, and third, with a very considerable petroleum resources. So one can see that in real world terms, that kind of decision is an important decision and an infinitely better way of settling the dispute than letting it just roll on and embroil states in deeper disputes or worse still, uh, leading to uh, the use of force. Now there is a use of force case before the uh, court. Uh, armed activity is in the territory of the Congo, uh, Congo versus Uganda, uh, quite an important uh, case to those two states and it may well be important in terms of its wider implications. There is a case in which Croatia is alleging that Serbia, or its predecessor state, committed genocide in the course of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. There was a prior such case brought by Bosnia and Herzegovina against Serbia, on which the court ruled a year or so ago. Uh, there is a case which is quite important from the point of view of the environment as well as the law of treaties uh, between Argentina and Uruguay. Argentina is complaining that the building of pulp mills by a Finnish company uh, in Uruguay uh, along the river that divides the two states um, will uh, deleteriously affect the waters and um, the Argentine provinces just south of this area and the like. And indeed it asks for provisional measures, a sort of interim injunction to call a halt to the building of the pulp mills, which the court declined to give, but the merits of that case uh, remain. And one can see there again that in the real world, this is a case of considerable importance to those two states, but also it may have implications for the development of the law of the environment, uh, which could be significant. Now there is a foreign investment case before the court. Uh, this one has not gone to arbitration in the way I've described, presumably because there's no treaty providing for it between, here it is, the Republic of Guinea and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. What's singular about this case is it's not a, a north-south case of a developed country investor having a claim against a developing country host state. It's a case of a national uh, of 
Guinea, who had been living in and running a business in the Congo, uh, whose business he claims was seized and he claims he was unlawfully expelled, uh, mounting a more traditional claim uh, for reparations. Then there are a few cases to which France and African states are party about jurisdictional issues. And there's another a case which isn't one of the maritime boundary, but more of a river boundary. Uh, this one between uh, Costa Rica and Nicaragua. Now that gives the, the listener a sense of what the court does. That's its contentious jurisdiction. Uh, the court also has a very important advisory jurisdiction. The most recent advisory opinion it gave uh, concerned the so-called wall uh, that was being built and still is being built uh, on uh, territory of Israel and territory occupied. Uh, by Israel. Uh, many of these advisory opinions have been on uh, less portentous issues than that. Uh, quite a number have been UN housekeeping uh, issues of great or lesser importance. For example, I mentioned the first case in which I was involved in 1964, certain expenses of the United Nations. The issue then was, uh, are member states bound to pay peacekeeping assessments of the UN? That was quite important at the time, very important uh, to the financial health of the UN and indeed to the politics of the viability of the General Assembly. Um, uh, more recently, uh, an advisory opinion was sought um, by the Human Rights Commission of the UN through the Economic and Social Council, of which is a subsidiary organ, as to whether a special rapporteur appointed by the Commission had immunities uh, from sanctions uh, of his own government. Uh, this person being a, a, a rapporteur on the independence of courts uh, who had um, run into difficulties with his own uh, government there. Again, it may have seemed like a relatively minor case, though not minor to the individual and the government concerned, uh, but the implications uh, of the status of UN officials or persons appointed under UN auspices to carry out functions is significant. Now, an inevitable question that someone listening to a talk on the court will ask is, well, are the judgments of the court carried out? Are they obeyed? I'm not speaking now of the advisory opinions, which are not binding, but for the binding judgments in contentious cases. And the answer to that question is nearly always, but not invariably. Uh, there have been three or four cases in the history of the court uh, where 
the losing state uh, has not uh, abided by the judgment uh, of the court. In such a case, the winner can ask the Security Council to take steps to enforce the judgment and that ha recourse has been resorted to, uh, but it's never been effectively applied. Uh, but in the very great majority uh, of the contentious cases that come to the court, you know, the parties have uh, faithfully implemented the judgment however unhappy they may be with it. Now, I wouldn't want to leave the listener with the impression that, for my part, whatever that matters, I think every judgment of the International Court of Justice has been perfect, uh, not subject to improvement, etc. Uh, obviously, there's room for difference of opinion uh, in these matters. In fact, the court allows uh, dissenting judgments, and there have been plenty uh, of them. Uh, and uh, in, in most, most cases, indeed, that come to the court are not open and, and shut. But on the whole, I think it's fair to say that the processes of international arbitration and adjudication are pretty good. And certainly so when one compares them with national processes of adjudication, which in the more established democracies are largely, but by no means entirely, successful. Uh, and in which in most states of the world are not uh, all that successful. On the contrary, uh, in so many states, uh, recourse to the court uh, is not considered uh, a plausible option because the courts are incompetent or are corrupt. And one considers the uneven nature of the judicial process throughout the world, I think the international processes stand up pretty well and that the United Nations for its part uh, can be pleased with the performance of the International Court of Justice.